Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have again. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, the breeze is blowing. And we have this opportunity in nature, Lord, to open the Bible and to study. We ask, Father, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his blood. Amen. So this morning's subject matter is the divine mantle. The divine mantle. And subtitle is, when you cannot see him, you must trust him. When you cannot see him, you must trust him. So I looked up what the word mantle meant in the uh, online. And I just wanted to get someone else's perspective. It says, question, what is a mantle in the Bible? The answer, although there are variations of the meaning of mantle in the Bible, the main idea is that of a covering such as a cloak or other article of clothing. The New American Standard Bible uses the word mantle in Joshua 7, 21 and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12. In the former passage, the ESV translates the word as a cloak, and in the latter, robe. Now watch this. In biblical times, a mantle was typically a large, loosely fitting garment made of animal skin, probably sheepskin. Several people are mentioned as wearing a mantle, including Job and Ezra. Prophets, pay attention now, prophets were known for wearing mantles as a sign of their calling from God. The prophet Samuel wore a mantle. The prophet Elijah threw his cloak or mantle as a symbol of the passage of his ministry from Elijah to Elisha. The prophet's mantle was an indication of his authority and responsibility as God's chosen spokesman. We're going to open our Bibles now to the book of Revelation, if you don't mind. And the question that has been in my mind, because we've been talking about abiding in Christ, right? But my question is, who did Christ abide in? We talk about abiding in Christ, but my question is, who did Christ abide in? For we know that Christ is our example. He is our pattern. So we're going to look first in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and we're going to read the third angel's message. Revelation chapter 14, and we're going to read the third angel's message, beginning at verse number 9. The Bible says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that, what my friends? Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, I've read this passage many times over. I've actually memorized it. I had my daughter memorize it. All three angels we've memorized. But this one in particular, the third angel, we're told that the third angel's message is righteousness by faith in verity. That's what we're told about this third angel's message, that it is righteousness by faith in verity. Actually, it's just the third angel. Yeah, if you read the quote, the quote says the third angel is righteousness by faith in verity. And I can show you afterwards if that's all right. So in my mind, as I was reading the third angel, I'm reading through the passage. And let's read through it once more. I'm going to read verse 9. You tell me what you see. And the third angel followed with a loud voice saying, If any man worship the beast in his image shall receive his mark in his forehead and in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine and the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. I'm curious how this is righteousness by faith in verity. 
And then it says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, I'm curious how this is righteousness by faith in verity. And then it says, and the smoke of the torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. I'm curious, how is that righteousness by faith in verity? The last verse says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Now, please note in verse number 10, it tells us the results of those who receive the mark of the beast and his image. It tells us the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So I want to identify for us what the wrath of God is. But before I do that, go to, with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 12. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. What we're doing again, we're just laying a foundation. Revelation chapter 6, and we're at verse number 12. And it says, I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree cast of her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and every island was moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? I have a question now. Have you ever seen an angry lamb? It's not something that you normally see. An angry lamb. And also, I think there's something very strange about this passage as well. You see that you guys have mountains out here. Can you imagine humanity running to the mountain and begging an inanimate object to fall on them? Would you go talk to rocks? Would you go talk to mountains? There's something great and momentous that is transpiring here that is causing the people to run to the rocks instead of running to the lamb. We're going to run to the rocks instead of running to the lamb. There's something that has transpired that has caused them to be in this place. But let's go a little bit further. I want us to go now with, to, with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew 26, and here we're going to see our Lord. In Matthew 26, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 36. Matthew 26 and verse 36, and we're talking about abiding. Matthew 26, verse 36 it says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, watch what he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto, what's the word, my friend? Death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as what? So I want you to notice something here, my friends. And again, we're going to take a long look at Jesus today. When you look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he's exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Jesus is dying without one whip, without one nail. Jesus is already suffering the penalty of sin in the garden. I want you to keep this in mind. Because sometimes we focus on the physical pain of Jesus when reality, my friends, is he is dying right here in the garden with no human hand touching him. Are you following me, my friends? So he's dying. 
It says in verse number 37, And he took with him Peter, two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And when he cometh unto the disciples, he findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what, my friends? Is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O oh my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Stay with me, my friends. And he came and found them asleep again. Their eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Now in other passages of the gospel, as Jesus is going through this trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that an angel actually comes and strengthens him. It doesn't remove the cup. He's strengthened to endure the cup. Now, my question at this point is, what is it that he's suffering in this cup? Go with me to the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, I'm just going to begin reading at verse number one. Hopefully you have taken time to memorize this chapter. The Bible says, Who have believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now notice what it says. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are what, my friends? Healed. I do want you to note as we are reading the passage that Jesus is not only bearing the sins of the world, he is bearing our sorrows too. I often think to myself, I remember a question was raised at one of workshops that I did a few years back. And a lady raised her hand and asked the question, where was God when I was being molested? I remember that question and I really didn't have an answer. Not at that time. And another young man raised his hand, and he himself had been molested. And he said to the woman, he said, God was right there suffering with you. It says that he bore our sorrows. He didn't just bear our sins. He bore our sufferings. He just didn't bear the punishment for evil, my friend. Are you following me thus far? So I'm reading, and it goes on to say, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord have laid on him the iniquity of how many, my friends? So listen to this. In my mind's eye, as I'm reading the passage, it doesn't say that we laid on Jesus the iniquity. Because not everybody actually confesses their sins and gives their sins to Jesus. Do you realize that? Yes? So the Bible says that the Father himself laid on his Son our iniquity. Did y'all see that? Did you read that? Am I making that up? It says the Father has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wait. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. 
And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit. Where, my friends? In his mouth. Now watch this, watch this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Do you see it? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put on him grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now, I read the passage. I'm saying to myself, okay, so in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is talking to his father. He said, Father, is there any other way... That the plan of salvation can be accomplished. If you could please remove the cup, I'm down for that. Because there's something transpiring in this interaction in the garden that the natural eye can't see. The father is placing the sins of the world upon the son. You didn't do that. The father did it. And I think about it. Think about it. Remember I told you that not everybody in the whole entire world, not everybody in the whole entire world is going to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus knows that not everybody in the world is not going to accept him as Lord and Savior. But Jesus in that moment in time takes the sins for every person in humanity in that moment in time. Are you paying attention to what I'm saying to you? So even the profligate, the atheist, the Hitler, whoever they are, their sins had been paid for at Calvary. Jesus suffered for people who he knew would not accept him. Y'all not hearing this thing. We're talking about great love here. We're talking about a profound love. Listen. Is one thing to sacrifice for the sake of saving those who you know will reciprocate your love. But it's altogether another thing to die for people who you know 100% will not accept your sacrifice. What love? So in my mind as I'm seeing this, remember now Jesus perceives that his father is placing on him a cup. He is receiving the wrath of God upon him. Now, as I look at the passage and I'm looking at what's happening here, I go back now to the book of Revelation. Go back to Revelation chapter 13. Let's read this with more clarity and understanding. Let's read this so we can understand the great plan of salvation as we see prophecy. Back to Revelation chapter 14. And I want to read the third angel's message once more. In Revelation chapter 14, and I'm reading now in verse number 9, it says very clearly, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, or receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Wait a second. Didn't we just not understand from our simple study in Isaiah 53 and Matthew chapter 26? That the wrath of God was already poured out upon Jesus? Listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying to you. The wrath of God that you see here that's going to be poured out upon those who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. That wrath had already been placed upon the Son of God as he's in Gethsemane and as you're going to see him at Calvary. That's why, listen to me, that's why... When the mark of the beast and all these different things transpire, there is no remedy after that. What the people are deciding at that moment in time is, we will bear our own sins. We will take our own punishment. We will save ourselves. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you, friends? That's essentially what's transpiring at this moment in time in Revelation chapter 14. Third angel's message gives warning. Don't take the mark of the beast. Why? Because the son has already suffered for your sins. In this moment in time, they're choosing to bear their own sins. In fact, let's take this a tad bit further. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 15 now. And we're going to jump down to Revelation chapter 15. I want you to see... Very carefully, Revelation chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 
number five. It says, and after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, the testimony of heaven was open, and the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of, what's it say next, my friends? What does it say? The wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels was fulfilled. Now again, I'm reading this because we're talking about abiding. You see, those seven last plagues that are poured out is the wrath of God, unmingled with mercy. Poured out upon a generation of people that have rejected the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, before I go further into that, I want to go back to Calvary. Go with me to Matthew chapter 27 now, please. We're going to start reading at verse 24. Matthew 27. And we're going to begin reading at verse 24. Father, as we are about to read, I ask for our eyes to be open to see Jesus as we have never yet seen him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Pay attention now. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit upon him. And took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found the men of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down they watched him there, and they set up over his head the accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days. What's that phrase right there? What did they say to him? Save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Tell me, in that one sentence right there, do you think that was evil angels or God's angels telling him to come down from the cross? These were men and women who were mocking Jesus and telling him, come down from the cross. Now, why are they telling him to come down from the cross? In fact, let me tell you something. As we read this, I'm going to say it and then I'm going to show you. The cross was a cruel invention of Satan to stop Jesus from dying. Think about what I'm saying to you. The cross... The floggings, the physical pain was designed by the enemy of souls to say to Jesus, there's too much pain going on here. Come down from the cross. If Jesus dies, my friend, this is it. That's a nail in the coffin. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? 
Come down from the cross, is what they're crying, saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Watch the next verse. Likewise, also, the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of the Jews, let him now what? Come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, for he said, For if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Wait a second. Now, even at Calvary, humanity is questioning whether or not Jesus himself is the divine son of God. The identity of Jesus is being attacked on Calvary. I hope you guys see what's happening here. I'm looking at this. And then something else begins to take place. And we talked about it somewhat this morning. I want to jump down to verse 44. These also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land into the ninth hour. Now, when you read this and you read all the other gospels in regards to what's happening at the cross, nature itself is convulsing with the attack on its creator. The atoms themselves, nature, the clouds, everything gets dark. Sister White points out clearly that the darkness was a supernatural darkness, not a natural phenomenon. It became dark around the cross. The ground is shaking. Earth itself is, what is happening to our creator? I'm going to read something to you. Jesus is dying. Now, as he's dying, my friends, Listen to what this says, Isaiah 753, paragraph 2. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. How is he tempting him? Come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. These people that you're dying for, they're not going to do anything righteous for you anyway. Come down from the cross. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Remember, the question I asked was, how, where, we're talking about abiding in Christ. I'm asking you, where did Jesus abide? The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave as a conqueror. Or tell him of the Father's acceptance of his sacrifice. He feared, listen to this, he feared that sin was so offensive to God. That their separation was to be what, my friends? Eternal. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy no longer pleads for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. My friends, it's hard for us to imagine it. And I, even as I try to speak to you, I know that only the Spirit will be able to unveil to our understanding what's happening at Calvary. But sin is so repulsive to God and so dark that Jesus himself, the Son of the Most High God, cannot see how God is going to save. Will the sacrifice be enough? Jesus in his humanity begins to question within himself. Now he's our example. Remember Jesus cries out. Verse 46. About the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God. Why has thou what, my friends? What's it say? I'm talking to you about the divine mantle right now, my friends. Now watch this next quote. In that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness his pavilion and conceals his glory from human eyes. 
God and his angels were beside the cross. Do you see that? Do you see that? They were there. Jesus does not feel the presence. He does not know God is there. There is a divine mantle covering him. God and his own holy angels were beside the cross. The father was with his son. Yet his presence was not, what does it say my friends? Revealed. Had his glory flashed from the clouds, every human beholder would have been destroyed. In that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone. And of the people, there was none with him. Oh, my brain tries to understand this. Think about it for a second, my friends. You're talking about the weight of the sins of the world. We're not just talking about your sins individually. We're not just talking about my sins individually. We're talking about the sins of the entire world, from the child molester to the homosexual to the profligate to the fornicator to the wife beater. Every sin that has ever been committed in human history is being placed upon the Son of God and is so dark and is so dreadful that he himself cannot sense. And the Father himself says, I cannot show my presence to my Son. Humanity does not sense the great love and communion that it normally had. Listen to me, friends. Some of us have gone through dark times, and it has been because there has been a divine mantle over your experience so that you can learn to trust God when you can't see him. Listen, there's more. It goes on to say, In the thick darkness, God veiled the last human agony of his son. All who had seen Christ in his suffering had been convicted of his divinity. That face, once beheld by humanity, was never forgotten. As the face of Cain expressed his guilt as a murderer. Listen to this. So the face of Christ revealed innocence, serenity, benevolence. And what's the next part say? The image of God. You're telling me that Jesus had serenity while he was on the cross? In his face? It's strange when you think about it. You think of the martyrs. Remember we read about the martyrs? And they burn at the stake. And while they're burning at the stake, they sing songs. How do they have that type of experience? There's something special about truly being a Christian from the inside out. But they saw it, it says. But his accusers would not give heed to the signet of heaven. Through long hours of agony, Christ had been gazed upon by jeering multitude. Remember now, Jesus is not clothed. You know how we have these nice pictures of him being clothed. He's completely naked on the cross, my friends. You're talking about the Son of God, the Most High. Being disrespected, not by me, by you, by humanity. Now, listen to this. Now he was mercifully hidden by the what, my friends? By the mantle of God. Now, I thought about this because Sister White, I believe, is inspired by God. I don't care what anybody says. She uses a word there that says mantle of God. Why didn't she say cloak of God or covering of God? She uses the word mantle. Remember, I read to you from the beginning what a mantle was. A mantle was a sign of authority, right? So if I pass my mantle to you, there's a responsibility. In that moment in time, Christ bore a mantle that no other being in heaven or on earth will ever bear. That mantle was to bear our sins in his body. And the Bible says that he actually became sin for us. I'm going to come back to that point. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, listen. Oh, let me back up. So remember I asked the question from the beginning. Who did Christ abide in? You know the answer. Who did he abide in? He abided in his Father. 
But how did he abide? See, if we can know how Jesus abided in the greatest crisis in earth's history, which was the cross, then we can learn how to abide in our present. Yes or no? Watch this. Amid the awful darkness apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance hitherto forgiven him. What does hitherto for mean? That was before. <laughs> hitherto for is a big word for before. So before he gets to Calvary, before he's suffering, there was many times when the father said, this is my beloved son. And whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. He has seen the work that God had done through him in healing the sick and raising the dead. So he's remembering these things. And then it says, he was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. And what's the next part say? By faith. By faith, he rested in him. Another word for rested? He abided. By faith he abided in him in whom it had ever been his joy to obey. So, how did he abide? He could not sense the presence of his father. The angels did not reveal themselves while he was on Calvary. So what did he have to do? He had to remember he had to remember the character of his father. He had to remember how God had led him in the past. He had to remember who God was, his character, his government. He had to remember this and rely on those things. Because his senses were telling him altogether something different. His senses were telling him that he was condemned of God. His senses were telling him that he would not come forth from the tomb. His senses were telling him that he was not worthy. His senses were telling him that this sacrifice would not be enough to save humanity. His senses were telling him everything else. But he had to abide. My friends, if you don't know Jesus, you can't abide in him. If you don't understand the plan of salvation, you can't abide in him. We're going to come up to a great crisis. Everything's going to be turned on his head. There are going to be miracles happening and all these strange things. It's going to look like we're the bad guys. Like we're the crazy ones. It's going to look like we're the ones that are making things bigger than what they are. It's going to look like the world is coming together in oneness and unity. And it's going to look like we are the strange cuckoo people. The only way you're going to make it, my friends, is if you abide. If you remember the great plan of salvation. If you remember how God has led you in your past history. The only way that you're going to abide is you're remembering your experience with him. But then, this is from the great controversy. And I read this to you in your hearing because I believe as a people we need to study and understand. Great controversy beginning in page 622 paragraph 4. It says, the time of trouble such as never was is soon to open before us. And we shall need an experience. What's the word I used just there? Experience. experience, which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to obtain. Please explain to me what the word indolent means. Lazy. Listen. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. But this is not true of the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. In that time of trial, every soul must stand for himself before God. Remember, Jesus trawled the wine press how? Alone. Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall neither deliver son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. Next paragraph. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. What is that? There's a song, a hymn that says, The Lord our rock, in him we hide. A shelter in the time of storm. Okay, so let's say there's a storm outside and you're halfway in. 
you're somewhat in, one foot in, one foot out. Is that safe? Are you safe that way? No, you want to be all the way in. Is that right? You want to be all the way in. You want to be in the shelter. During the flood, would it have been all right for them to stand on the deck of the ark? We're going to hang out on the deck because we know the ark's going through. We're going to be on top. Is that smart? No, that's not smart. You need to be inside the ark. A storm is coming. Get in board, little children. Get on board. Inside. Now, while our great high priest is making atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold. Some sinful desire is cherished by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, listen to this, the prince of this world cometh and have nothing in me. Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. Sis, can you come up for a second? All right. I need four men. Four men. Just come up, please. Four men. I know there are four men in here. Do I need to speak deeper so you can understand? All right. Here's what I want you to say. If you stand right here, please. All right. My brother, I want you to stand right here. All right. If you could stand right here, my brother. Yes. I want you to stand like this. Yes. And I want you to stand like this. Yes. I want you to stand like this. Yes. Thank you. And if you could stand like this. You see this? This is in Christ. She's not going to defend herself. She can't fight for herself. She has no strength of herself. Christ is her fortress. Christ is her strength. Say, I'm the enemy. Now, listen, I've done this before. And uh, one time I was doing this at a church, and I told them to defend. And this brother, not you, this guy pretty much was like, oh, you're going to try to get to her? And he, boom, and I flew back. It was a wonderful illustration. The power of God, right? But I'm going to try to reach my sister. You're going to stop me, okay? Oh, oh, look at that. I appreciate that. I'm going to go try this way. I'm going to try to get in this way. Oh, look at that. I'm, a, I'm coming from this side now. Maybe I can, maybe I can trick this side. But, so there's no way that I can get inside here to get to her. But in order to get to her, this is what the devil has to do. Hey, you want a piece of chocolate? <laughs> hey, 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 you want to go to the movies? You want to come hang out with us? Go have a good time. Come on, girl. He has to get you to come out from there to have power over you. The believer, as they abide in Christ, knows nothing of failure. Knows nothing, but why? Because our Lord knows no failure. He's a complete victor from the grave to heaven. Sin couldn't even keep him in the grave. Abide in Christ. Stay close to him. The enemy's a loser. You know, sometimes God allows the enemy to touch you, but just because he touches you doesn't mean that he has victory over you. Remember, he touched Jesus. He beat Jesus. It doesn't mean he has victory. You need to trust your Lord when things don't look like it's going well. Trust him. Trust him. I'm going to read to you. Keep reading here. It is in this life that we are to separate sin from us. Father, how do we separate sin from us? Listen to what it says. Through faith in the atoning blood of Christ, our precious Savior invites us to join ourselves to him, to unite our weakness to his strength, our ignorance to his wisdom, our unworthiness to his merits. God's providence is the school in which we are to learn the meekness and lowliness of Jesus. 
Listen to this. The Lord is ever setting before us not the way we would choose. Remember Jesus said, Father, not my will, but... But if you could, please take the cup away. Father said, no, that's not what I want. I need you to take the cup, son. All of us are like, we take the cup, we pour it out. No, I ain't drinking that. Father says, take the cup. Why? Watch why. What happens? It says... The Lord has ever said before us, not the way we would choose, which seems easier and pleasanter to us, but the true aims of life. It rests with us to cooperate with the agencies which heaven employs in the work of conforming our characters to the divine model. None can neglect or defer this work, but at the most fearful peril to their souls. Not the way we would choose. I want to read something else to you. I'm going to read the quotation that I was demonstrating with the young lady and the gentleman there. Hopefully I can pull it up. Listen to this. When the soul surrenders itself to Christ, a new power takes possession of the new heart. A change is wrought which man can never accomplish for himself. <laughs> It is a supernatural work bringing in a supernatural element into the human nature. The soul that is yielded to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a revolted world. And he intends that no authority be known in it but his own. Y'all not hearing this day. It says, a soul thus kept in possession by the heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. But unless we do yield ourselves to the control of Christ, we shall be dominated by the wicked one. We must inevitably be under the control of the one or the other of the two great powers that are contending for the supremacy of this world. It is not necessary for us to deliberately choose the service of the kingdom of darkness in order to come under its dominion. Hmm. We have only to neglect to ally ourselves with the kingdom of light. If we do not cooperate with the heavenly agencies, Satan will take possession of the heart and will make it his abiding place. Mercy, my friends. The only, here's that word only. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going to do a sermon on only. The only defense against evil is the indwelling of Christ in the heart through faith in his righteousness. That's Desire of Ages 324. And there's much more to that quotation. I want you to go back to Calvary for a moment. There's something supernatural and amazing that transpires there. I'm going to read this from Desire of Ages. And again, I normally don't do a bunch of quotations. That's not normally how I preach. But I think this is so significant. And I can't figure out the best words to express the thoughts that I was reading. To the angels in the unfallen worlds, the cry, it is finished, had a deep significance. It was for them as well as for us that the great work of redemption had been accomplished. Did you see that? They with us share the fruits of Christ's victory. So the angels benefit from what happened at Calvary. The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who was the originator of sin. When Satan is destroyed, there will be none to tempt to evil. The atonement will never need to be repeated. And there will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. That which alone, listen to this, alone is just like only. That which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin where my friends what alone will prevent sin in this world of darkness what alone the sacrifice of Christ the death of Christ that's the only thing that's going to keep you from listen <laughs> so I've been in the you know this advent movement and the particular arm that I come out of is like the conservative quote unquote present truth arm okay that arm, beautiful teaching, okay? But sometimes 
the reforms are taught above the reformer. So we need to eat this way, which is true. We do need to dress a certain way, which is true. We do need to listen to the right music and leave the bad music off, which is true. There is truth that there are people within our midst who are really not for us and against us. This is true. But none of that will keep you from sin. Nobody heard me. None of it will keep you from sin. Today, if you resolve in your heart that you will never eat cheese again in your life, which I suggest you do, that will not keep you from sin. It won't. Only one thing will. You need to behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. You need to figure out where he is and keep your eyes fixed on him. For if you look at the weaknesses in your brother or the weaknesses in your sister, you're going to go down. You're going to go down, my friends. I'm telling you, I'm giving you the secret. That which alone can effectually restrain sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in the paradise of God without the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Should we not then exalt the cross of Christ? Yes. Why? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking at the sufferings of God. We're talking about unfallen angels. The unfallen angels are only secure by remembering at what happened at Calvary. And for someone to preach present truth and say that the cross is the milk of the word, they are confused. For even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. You want to stop apostasy in the church? Preach the cross. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the who, my friend? Look to the Lamb of God. The enemy's tricky, man. He is tricky. Behold the Lamb which takes away the sins of the world. John points to the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. For they are only kept secure by beholding the sufferings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's time for me to wrap it up. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels, before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself, what's it say, my friends? A murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Hence, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. Watch this now. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. What did it happen at? That last link of sympathy. Where was it broken? At the cross. I read this to you now. And when I read this for the first time with understanding, I actually cried. It says, yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. So we just read how at Calvary, last link of sympathy broken. At Calvary, even angels now are kept by what happened at Calvary. We read all that, right? But now, even now, at Calvary, they don't understand the great plan of salvation still. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. 
That's where I cried. For the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. That's unacceptable. For the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. And man must choose whom he will serve. You know why we're still here? We haven't made up our minds. We still think Satan's ideas are pretty cool. We still think that Satan's temptations, the way that Satan comes to us with his little crafty moves, there must be some level of enjoyment there. We haven't really voted for Jesus, brothers and sisters. But wait, I read this. But when I read it, I really didn't read where you know, it says Satan was not then destroyed. I put there instead of the angels. I put the angels, and that says the principles at stake were to be more fully revealed, and for the sake of Andre, Satan's existence must be continued. You put your name there. You put your name there, please. Don't put the conference name. Put your name there. Don't put your wife's name there. Put your name there. For the sake of Andre, Satan's existence must be continued. Andre, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. Andre must choose who he will serve. Have you chosen? Have you made up your mind that there's no better way but Jesus? You know how Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Have you made up your mind? You know, every decision that you make tells whether or not you truly made up your mind. Know you not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey. His servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Who do you love? Who has your heart? Who has your purest affections? Remember, Jesus could not see through the portals of the tomb. Jesus had no sense of the Father's love as he's on Calvary. All he could do was remember. And as he's remembering, he's resting in the revelation of the character of his Father. Not that he felt anything. He moved by faith. My friends, do you want to have that type of faith, the faith of Jesus? If you want that faith, let me see your hand. You want that faith? You know, the only way you can have that faith, you must surrender. You must surrender. And the only way that you can get to the point of surrendering, my favorite quotation, as a student of the Bible, beholds the Redeemer, there's awakening in the soul the mysterious power of faith Adoration and love. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed. And the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. You must behold him. And then he creates in you the ability to have faith. You must look and you will live. The whole plan of salvation is based upon you beholding the lamb. Is that simple? Behold the Lamb which takes away the sins of the world. Look at Him. Keep staring. Keep looking. You will change. Don't look away for a moment. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. How many understood what we studied this afternoon or morning? Let's pray together. There's more, but I'm just going to stop. Father in heaven, just thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son who died not just for those who will accept him, but died for those who he knew would never accept him. And Father, we thank you for revealing to us even this day a little bit more of your son. But my special prayer for each one under the sound of my voice, whether they listen to this online or whether they're here in this room, I pray, Father, that you would give us a fresh revelation of your dear son. Please, Lord. The world is going crazy. Our homes are flipping upside down. 
It's so easy to become discouraged and walk away from Christianity altogether. But show us your son, Father. For as the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Father, please show us your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.